Well, today we're beginning our study of the book of Exodus. And uh, got a few introductory things. You saw the handout. We'll get to that in a little bit. I want to start here. Why study Exodus? Any thoughts you have? Why would we study Exodus? Okay, the law is introduced in Exodus. Um, that's a that's a great thing. Um, and um, yeah, the, the law is there. As a matter of fact, I've got a few notes of my own. Go over to Galatians three twenty four. See if I picked the right verse because I didn't put enough notes behind it to make sure I was thinking correctly. But Galatians 3.24, pretty sure I got the right one. Um, let's look at 23 through 25. Who can read that for us? Galatians 4, I'm sorry, 3, 23 through 25. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There's yeah, we'll, we'll just stop there. Um, the, the point I wanted to make from that passage is that when we look at the law, the law has a purpose with regard to Christ. Christ fulfilled the law, and yet it's the law that takes us right up to Christ. And... Paul is very explicit in other passages. We could look at Romans 5 and 6 and uh, many other passages, probably 3 and 4. I'd have to think about 3 and 4 in Romans a bit. But the law is, is central to understanding what we need in Christ and why it's such a great opportunity of faith. Um, what does the law, what's the main thing the law teaches us? We're sinners. I, I cannot earn my salvation. And the more I try to do it through the law, the more it's going to become clear that I'm a failure of trying to do it through the law. Now, there's a secondary thing that I think we ought to pay attention to with regard to the law because um, there are some things that are very specific about what do you do if you accidentally kill your neighbor's cow and some of that that might be at a little bit lower level, still important, but there's a lot of the law that teach us the principles behind what God desires as fruit in our lives. The law tells us don't, but out of the don'ts we can get the do's, and we can get the fruit of the Spirit, and we can also see what love of the world does to us. I'm sorry, I, I, gotta, I, I want to keep going. We could wind up with me rambling on quite some time about uh, the law versus Christ. But yeah, that's an excellent point. Why else would we study the book of Exodus? A lot of tradition came to be towards the end 
Okay. All right. There's tradition, uh, other specific law things, and practices for the Jews. Absolutely. Their, their uh, type of worship and what was expected to go on during their worship was, is included here. What else? Yeah, there is a there is a lot here with regard to establishing the kingdom of Israel, and to say the word kingdom comes short because this is the one truly intended, mandated by God, established theocracy. Yes, it's the kingdom of Israel, but it's really the kingdom of God for Israel. And so that's, that's there. And, and, and it's hard to stop just with that because what's the whole theme of the Bible? Faith in Christ, God's redemption of man, God's grace. And when we look at how he implemented that, we can't divorce ourselves from the Jews. We can't divorce ourselves from Abraham. It's we can't divorce ourselves from the covenants that uh, Dave presented and that we saw with regard to covenants for Abraham. And uh, then the people of the promise that come out of those covenants, God said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And through that nation will be a blessing to all nations. And that's where we begin to see the development of the intention of God that through the Israelite nation, is the path that he would choose to bring us Christ. And so you've got all of that happening. And it's interesting as we look at the people of the promise, even in Genesis, Abraham is the receiver of the covenant, right? And through him there's a promise that is passed down. But interestingly, it's through Isaac, not Ishmael. So even in the promise you have some separation occurring. And it's Jacob, not Esau. And so when you see these things happening, happening, you see how God uh, works through His gracious, loving intent, through His sovereignty to establish a people in His covenant with regard to Abraham and turn them into a nation because that was the promise. You'll be father of a great nation. And so we get to see all of that played out in the establishment of Israel. And you would have to say, despite who they were. You have to say, despite who they were. You see the sovereignty of God played out, but it's through grace that he calls up certain people to expend his grace on. And yes, some of them are faithful, but it's through the power of God. Many are not faithful. Well, I'll just give you a few other things here. Um, We get to see God's power and faithfulness in both visible and interactive dimensions. He interacts with the people and shows who he is, reveals his character by how he deals with the people as they make the exodus, as well as he shows himself through physical form. Not through, oh, I've actually been face-to-face with God, but uh, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night, uh, he reveals 
his hindermost parts to Moses. That'll be an interesting discussion that I don't have all sorted out yet. But the, the information's there, so I can sort it out. And so God, God is very, very interactive with the people throughout the book of Exodus. And I'm not saying he's not in other places, but we get to see it with a poignancy that is not as quick to come out in some other portions of Scripture. Um, there's another thing that we see in Exodus, as well as in the rest of the Scriptures, but I think you see it even more vividly in the book of Exodus. It's tempting to read the book of Exodus and look at the decisions that the Israelites make and the, the rebellion that um, comes up in their lives and their lack of faith and all kinds of things and say, those foolish people. But we get to see who we would be apart from the grace of God working in our lives because that's who we would be. Uh, we kid ourselves if we think that we... Gentiles particularly, are somehow wiser and we would have got it right. That's just silliness. Um, we, we are people, our, the tendencies in our lives are to, to be like that, but through the grace of God, um, we get to choose a different path. We get to see it as foolish right out of the box. Um, they had to live through it many times in order to recognize how foolish their decisions are and many of them don't ever actually see it. So with all that said, Exodus is a pivotal book. It is a, it is a, a, a transition point from the general ways that God worked within mankind to the very specific ways he's going to bring about the salvation of the generations through their faith. And so that, that's some of the reasons that I've got down. Do you have anything else you want to add? I'm sure that I don't have an exhausting set of reasons. To constant re reference to it throughout the Bible. You know, I'm the Lord yes. God who brought you out of Israel. Yes. Many, many times. So, you know, that refers back to it. And, you know, it seems like, I, I think it'd be fair to say that this was actually the birth of the nation of Israel. Oh, absolutely. Um, so, yeah, it's really a foundational book as well. Mm-hmm. I think it also establishes or clearly demonstrates how faithful God is to us. Yes. And and how with the promises made to Abraham, you could put the word covenant on top of it, there'd be nothing wrong with that. But with the promises made to Abraham, he kept them. And he kept them with a group of people that did about everything they could figure out how to do to undermine his the reasons that you would think he would want to keep the promises. They were not exactly enthusiastic about following the God that was in the process of keeping a promise for them. I say they weren't. In general, they weren't. Um, and yet in specific, they would go through times where God did great things for them and they would rejoice and beat the band and beat the drum and, and do all the things that would go along with great rejoicing but it just didn't take very long before their tendency toward uh, lack of faith and uh, toward worldliness would come right back out again. Uh, 
So yes, you're you're right. It, it is that establishment. Okay. Any, anything else? Rick, I would say it's a massively God-centered It is. That's a good way of putting it. Yeah. So I, I, yeah, I worked I worked a little bit at trying to say we get to see God in interactive and visible form. What you said, just a better way of, of putting that, because we see God. God is the main character. He's the one at, in action, from the beginning to the end of the book. Um, I think we ought to say it early on too. Um, when God is taking action, is there an opposer? Who opposes God? Satan. And so um, this very much, even at times to include um, false gods, the gods of the Egyptians, this very much is an interaction between God establishing the nation he's going to bring Jesus the Christ out of and the law that Christ is going to fulfill. I mean, that's not a small piece. The one and only man who fulfilled the law, who lived without sin, is um, who comes out of this law and, or who, who, who keeps the law, comes out of the nation and keeps the law. And... Um, I don't know how much Satan is given regarding God's full plan through the centuries, through the millennia. But he knows if God's working, it's not what he wants. And we see his, we, we know that behind the opposition, we've got Satan often at work. And, and that's there. So... Um, so right before we get here into Exodus chapter 1, um, the sheet I handed out is, um, I had to figure out some sort of title for it, so I said uh, interesting points. I, I, there are things that are valuable to put into place and maybe refer back to it another time, but the Exodus itself, not the writing of the book, but the actual uh, beginning of moving out of Egypt into the land of Canaan begins in 1445 BC. So the date of the writing of the book has to be between then, and of course we couldn't write the book then, we have to let the events transpire, but between then and 1485, that's the year that Moses dies. And so the actual completion of the book would be pushing on that 1485 date so the events could be known and recorded. So Jacob's move to Egypt so if we look back before this, Jacob's move to Egypt is 1875 B.C. Um, I've got an error in there. I have to figure that out. Rick, I have a question. Yeah. Uh, if the date of Exodus is 1445 B.C., how mm-hmm. years down to zero? Yeah, that's got to be, that, that's not right. That's why I just noticed there's... There's an error right there. Part of this I stole here. And maybe I just did the math backwards. Yes. 
Um, so it was 1405. Yeah, 1405. Maybe I just typoed. I don't know. Um, because it's 40 years during the time of the Exodus. Thank you, Dave. I was just seeing that myself and going, oops, that can't be right. It's going the wrong direction. Um, and so, yeah, between 1445 and 1405, and then uh, Jacob's move to Egypt is 1875 BC, which is 430 years prior to the Exodus. Now, a lot had happened in the 430 years between Jacob's move and the Exodus itself. Joseph, his existence, the things under here, these bullets, uh, you can find somebody who'll say, well, no, it was close to that, but it was really this. So these are, don't take these as purely exact, but they're pretty close. Joseph was in the 12th dynasty in Egypt. The Exodus was in the 18th, maybe the 17th dynasty, but more people would say 18th and 17th, meaning there were numerous changes in government and in ethnic positions of the leaders. Just like everywhere, um, the people that were leading would rise to power in various ways. Um, and so you had sometimes some folks that were immigrants that moved up into leadership and it wasn't the typical Egyptians themselves. Uh, there were times when outside powers came in and influenced them. Um, and so they had gone through periods of weakness and foreign oppression. Um, at the time of the Exodus, and, and that's where you get a little bit um, of some question marks, when Moses rose to power, was it under the same group, same, was it also the 18th dynasty, or does it go back to the 17th dynasty, and we'll talk about that. The, I thought I had something in here on the hyssops. But uh, um, I don't see it. Maybe it's in my text itself. But um, so when the exodus occurred, um, Egypt was not weak. It was one of their times of great strength. They had expanded their government well outside of their borders. Thutmose III, almost certainly, was Pharaoh at the time of the Exodus. He was successful enough that his way of referring to him by many historians is the Napoleon of Egypt. So he was a very powerful leader, Pharaoh, at the time the Exodus itself occurred. Part of where we get our dating is that Solomon will build the temple 480 years after Exodus. That's in 1 Kings 6.1. We know when Solomon built the first temple, that's how we can subtract 480 years and say, well, the Exodus started here. And so through biblical sources, we have a pretty good uh, affirmation of the date of the Exodus. Uh, the events surrounding the Exodus and the conquest of Canaan is not significantly documented I said in historical documents, but you could add, or archaeology at the time. <clears throat> but there's a couple of reasons for this. Even though some use this to question the accuracy of the book, some would even question whether the Exodus happened. Uh, there's, there is still some evidence, it's just weaker than would be expected, 
But there's two reasons for that. One is when we look at the written documents and we know of other events that happened around Egypt, Egyptians didn't bother to record the embarrassing things. So they left them out, and there's examples of that in history. I'm not, I'm not ready to just, I don't have any to spurt out at you, but that's a characteristic we know about, is the Egyptians, um, well, I mean, go back to when we were reading Esther. With the, when the king got up in the night to read what happened, what his chronicles of his life and his reign, uh, does he want to hear about his two defeats over there trying to conquer the uh, Greeks? No, he wants to read about the time he did have success. Well, the same thing is how they kept their records in for Pharaoh. The other thing is, most of our historical wars, when we look for archaeological evidence, uh, we look through destruction and primarily burning destruction because that was the primary way of destroying things at the time. <coughs> and we don't see a lot of burn evidence for the Canaan con conquest. There are about five examples where they did burn a city, but it was rare. Why? God was taking them to a land of milk and honey. It said, you're going to live in houses you didn't build, and you're going to... Um, harvest crops out of from plants you didn't plant and you're going to use wine presses that you didn't build so they're not there to destroy they're there to take the people out as God commanded them and create for themselves a place to live and so they were they were slow to do that kind of destruction questions or comments All right, well, let's go over and look at Exodus 1. And let's begin by reading. Well, let me ask you a few questions first. Who wrote this book? Moses. Moses. Um, and there are places we could turn to for that. One is 1 Kings 2 3. We're not going to read that one. But if you went there, you would see them refer to Moses as the writer of these books. Better one, let's look at this one, Mark 12, 26. Um, this is um, Jesus speaking. And it just says something wonderful to us. Mark 12, 26. Oh, come on, fingers. One more page. Let me, let me read that for us. It says, so, so they're, they're trying to trap him and trying to show he's false or that he's not right, not, not really um, from God. And verse 26 says, But I, regarding the fact that the dead rise again, have you not read in the book of Moses in the passage about the burning of the bush how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob? He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are greatly mistaken. So Jesus goes to the proof about the burning bush, but have you not read in Moses? So Christ himself affirms Moses as the writer. Uh, what were the conditions of Jacob and his offspring in their, in, uh, that they were experiencing in their, at the end of Genesis? What, what did we, when we finished Genesis... What were the conditions they were living in? How did we leave off with them? They were given a, a, a portion of land that was 
Yeah, they were given the area of Goshen. Okay, what else? They hadn't been impacted by the famine in the same way that the Egyptians had. Not at all. Um, Joseph was still in charge. I've got a couple verses related to both of those comments. Let's go over to Genesis 47. And I want to look at verse 6. And then we'll look at verses 11 and 12. 47, 6. And at 11 and 12. In 47, 6, this is Pharaoh speaking to Joseph about taking care of his family. The land of Egypt is at your disposal. Settle your father and your brothers in the best of the land and let them live in the land of Goshen. And if you know any capable men among them, put them in charge of my livestock. So they were in a prominent place. They were given the best of the land and it was clearly under the direction of Joseph. Now go down to verses 11 and 12. So Joseph settled his father and his brothers and gave them a possession in the land of Egypt and the best of the land in the land of Ramses as Pharaoh had ordered. Joseph provided his father and his brothers and all his father's household with food according to their little ones. So they were there and they possessed the land and Joseph gave them what they needed for food. What were the Egyptians having to do to get food? Pay for it with everything. Before they got done, Pharaoh owned their everything. He owned their livestock. He owned their ground. Uh, they, he had it all. And so if we look at how that fared with the Egyptians, they were in a, a very better privileged status than the Egyptians. And uh, another good question is, what do you think the expectations of that time were with regard to the Israelites? What did they think their future was going to hold with regard to the location they would be living in? Let me ask you, if we moved you to a, to the, to a dominant country and gave you the best of the land and you had houses and you had a benefactor like you know, Joseph, there to take care of all your needs, how long are you going to stay? Well, so that was one expectation, and that's right. They, they didn't come in and go, okay, so, um, so what's our plan? Five years from now are we leaving? Seven years from now are we leaving? But the godly amongst them had a plan. Go to Genesis 50, 24 through 26. Genesis 50, 24 through 26. Why does that not read right? Because I'm not in chapter 50. There we go. Genesis 50, 24 through 26. We're in the death of Joseph. And he says this. He said to his brothers, I'm about to die. But God will surely take care of you and bring you up from this land, which he promised on oath. To, I'm sorry, bring you up from this land to the land, which he promised on oath to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. And then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely take care of you, and, shall and you shall carry my bones up from here. So Joseph died at the age of 110. He was embalmed and placed in a coffin in Egypt, which was a little unusual. He was in a coffin because they didn't plan on this being his final resting place. 
So Joseph told them, you're going. If we ran over, well, let's go over to Hebrews 11.22. We may not get through chapter day. That's okay. We'll get it all when we get there. Hebrews 11.22. By faith, Joseph, when his end was near, spoke about the exodus of the Israelites and gave instructions about his bones. So in the book of Hebrews, where we get to the great faith chapter, they're talking about Joseph's faith that, indeed, God would fulfill his promises that the Israelites would find themselves back in the promised land of Canaan and that he requested that they take his bones along. Okay, so now let's go over and look at Exodus 1, 1 through 7. So we're going to get a very different picture than the one we saw at the end of Genesis where they have a benefactor, they're in a very um, positive position. They're being treated almost like royalty, or at least relatives of royalty, and um, they are prospering. One of the things that we didn't read from Genesis, but it's there, about how they were growing in their goods that they owned and the land that they owned. And so now we'll see what their conditions are here in the beginning of Exodus. Who can read one through verses one through seven for us? These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, Judah, Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin, Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. And Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Okay. So, verses 1 through 4 are fairly straightforward. It's what we saw in Genesis and their transition. They name off the 11 brothers of Joseph that come down into Egypt. And um, Joseph was already there. And in verse 5, we see they put a number on it. If we count the offspring and wives that made the trip from Canaan to Egypt, it was 70, but Joseph was already there. Go over and look at Acts 7.14. Somebody can read that for us there, please. Uh, while you're turning, I'll remind you that Acts 7 is when Stephen is being stoned. And as he's in the pro and the when they're getting ready to cast the stones... Uh, he gives them a great defense and speech about who they should know they are. And he goes back through the, all of these kinds of things that we're talking about now. And this is one of the facts that he cites in, in going through the history that proves that uh, God was um, aligned with his belief in Christ and how they're ignoring their heritage. And so Acts 7.14 is one of those many verses. Somebody read that for us. And Joseph sent and summoned Jacob, his father, and all his kindred, 75 persons in all. So there's a difference there. What's the difference? Joseph. Joseph and his family make up the other five. So we have 75 people as what this nation started out as. And so as we go through back in Exodus 1... <clears throat> Um, it says in verse 6 that Joseph, his brothers, and all of that generation died. 
And then in verse 7, we see that the sons of Israel are very fruitful. They increased greatly, and the land was filled with them. So they started with 75. Um, in Numbers, well, let's go over and read it. Numbers 1, I want to look at verses 1 and 2, and then verse 45. Numbers 1, 1 and 2, and then verse 45. And what's going on here is uh, God has told Moses to number the people and find out how many there are as they prepare to deal with the upcoming um, battles and so on as they move into the area of the promised land. And so this is the account of Moses doing that. And I can't make my fingers work, but if you're there, read us out of Numbers 1, verses 1 and 2, and then skip down and read us verse 45. first day of the second month of the second year after the Israelites had come out of the land of Egypt, the Lord spoke to Moses in the tent of meeting in the wilderness of Sinai. He said, Take a census of the whole congregation of Israel by their clan and families, listing every man by name, one by one. Okay. Now skip down to verse 45, because the rest of it just details about family by family by family by family, what they found out. And then here's the conclusion in 45. So all the Israelites, 20 years of age or older, who could serve in Israel's army were counted according to their families. And those counted totaled 603,550. So these 75, by the, now, now this, this is not, this is a little bit after the time of the Exodus or while the Exodus is occurring. Um, and so it might have been just a little less than that, but soldiering age men, 20 and older, by this time, we're at 603,550. The people that make the estimates of well, how big were the families in that area and so on have estimated that by this time, we've got approximately 2 million people that are there when Moses makes this census count. So we start with 75, and we get to 2 million over the course of... 430 years and so they have definitely multiplied and they have become mighty so they're they're many and they're mighty they are a strong people and the land was filled with them uh, everywhere you looked you'd find another I mean not everywhere but certainly in the land of Goshen and the surrounding area everywhere you looked you're going to find another descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob there. So now let's go ahead and look at verses 8 through 14. Somebody read those for us. Who's got that? Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh's store cities, Pitom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians 
were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right. So we get a new king. And there in verse 8, the king looks around. And uh, first of all, he didn't know Joseph. He wasn't a part of that history. And indeed... Uh, we are in a new dynasty. Several dynasties have gone by, and we do, w- there is a lot of separation. Uh, it's been about 400 years, so you can imagine there, were, there weren't any allegiances to go back to the old days, and we, we're going to take care of these people because they saved us. No, now they're there, and we're dealing with their current situation. And so he said to his people, I don't know if that's his advisors, probably, but those working with him and around him, look, these sons of Israel are more, that's an interesting word, and mightier than we. They've grown up to the point that they could take this thing over if we don't do things that are shrewd. Yes, sir? Would a dynasty be more than a generation? Yeah. Um, typically, the dynasty is several generations within a family or a sect that ruled. So, um, yes, that, that would be, wouldn't be just a specific person would make a dynasty of it. could be that way, but generally it's more than one generation. Um, and so he looks around, he says, we've got to be shrewd here. Uh, we've got to manage this because if we get in a war and they join up with people that hate us, well, they could fight against us. And then in the last part of verse 10, he says, and depart from the land or leave or I think the version that uh, Steve read was escape why did they not want them to go away Labor force. they're doing a lot for the nation now they're not in slavery per se it's not said they're in slavery yet but the Jews when they came in they were shepherds and they were prospering and so they're probably still prospering people they're a big part of the economy uh, they're, they're important. One of the things that happened when the persecution of the Jews started in Europe, particularly in Germany, a lot of businesses disappeared. Why? It were Jews that owned and ran them and took care of things. So, you know, they took an awful lot out of their nation in terms of its capability as well as its knowledge as well as its production when they began to shut down the Jewish part of that society. Well, this would be probably many factors greater because of how great they had become in Egypt. And here's the result of his saying, we've got to deal shrewdly with them. They appointed taskmasters over them. And what's the purpose of the taskmasters? What does it say there in verse 11? Why did they do it? It was intended not only to get them to work hard, but it was intended to be an oppressive thing. We're going to beat these folks down. And I think by what we read in the context, we're going to see it was intended to slow down their population growth as well. Uh, And it said they built for Pharaoh storage cities, Pithon and Ramses. And we don't, the archaeologists, can't agree 
they can't even come up with anything that starts to sound common about where these two cities were. There have been many different locations called Ramses, but <clears throat> they generally believe that Pithon was a center for sun worship in northern Egypt, and that Ramses may have been Quintar, but it's in the eastern delta of Egypt and was another storage city. And so here they're building these storage cities and what Egypt, what we know they did in a storage city was gather up provisions and implements of war. So those are the two primary things they would probably be storing there, much like what Joseph did with the foodstuffs back in the Great Famine. They probably are still living out some of what they started there. Um, and so they intend to impress them and drive them down and put them down. Verse 12 tells us the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied and spread out, which by the context is real clear. That's not what they were hoping for. And they were in the dread of the sons of Israel. They were afraid of them. This, this isn't working well. This is a problem in the making. This is a disaster waiting to happen to us who are ruling Egypt, is the way they were looking at it. And so in verse 13, we see that the Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously. So they were under hard labor. Verse 14, and they made their lives bitter with hard labor in mortar and bricks and all kinds of labor in the field, and all the labors which they rigorously imposed on them. They were trying to wear these people out and wear them down, and it, was, it, would, it made them bitter. It was, a, it was a very, very oppressive, difficult situation that they were living under. And so that's, that's their first solution to what's going on here. And... Um, it is interesting that when we get back to very ancient Egyptian reliefs, carvings in walls, um, uh, stone, I don't think it's wood, but might be, and paintings, in this era, you, they show a lot of situations where there are clearly taskmasters and accountants there overseeing people working. And so even the Egyptian artwork supports what they're doing here. It wasn't like a labor foreman. It was like a, a man watching the labor holding a whip. And uh, at least in terms of, I don't know that that was in the pictures, but it would be that general kind of a, of a situation. So now let's look at verses 15 through 22. Somebody read those for us. The king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shifra and the other Pua, when you serve as midwives to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him, but if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them. <clears throat> Let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. 
<clears throat> so God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. <clears throat> and Pharaoh commanded all the, his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, that you shall let every daughter live. All right, so now we see number plan number two to deal with this growing Hebrew population. And so the king of Egypt calls in the midwives, one's named Shipra and the other one Pua. And obviously, if you got this many people, there's probably more than two midwives. These are probably the leaders amongst the midwives. Um, but regardless, the instructions are when you're helping the Hebrew women give birth, when you see them on the birthing stool, which, by the way, I, I can't fully relate to all this, but it was a stone, kind of like two steps, one step higher and the other one lower, and that's where they would give birth. I'm not, I don't know exactly how that was all arranged, but that was what a birthing stool was at the day. But if you see that it's a boy, you're killing. And if it's a daughter, let them live. Why would they do this? Why, why kill the boys and let the daughters live? Boys grow up to be warriors. And boys grow up to be warriors. Daughters don't. Why not kill them all? If you got too many Hebrews... My intuition says they wanted to keep growing the workforce. They just didn't want it to be threatening. And so you could still have women birthing more children, so you could keep this great asset to the nation there. They didn't want them to leave. I mean, they could have just drove them out, couldn't they? No, they, they said they might leave. That was a problem. And so they want this workforce, but they don't want the men to <coughs> exist to be a potential army against them. And verse 17, the midwives, did they do what they were asked to do? And why? They feared God. And, and, and you've got to put that in your thinking cap for a minute. Because if you're a Hebrew midwife and you're a Hebrew and acting as a midwife to your own people, who just asked you to do this murderous thing? Pharaoh. What, in terms of earthly power, Who's got power here? Pharaoh. I mean, looking at it from a worldly perspective, this is the guy that holds life and death over you. He just commanded you to murder some people, a lot of people, and he wouldn't have any qualms about putting you to death for not following what he said. But they feared God more than Pharaoh. And there's a testimony in that. And so they didn't do it. So they're still there helping the Hebrew women give birth, and they're not killing the boys. So verse 18, the king smells a rat, and he calls him back and says, Hey, why have you not done this? Why have you not done what we asked you to? Why are you letting these boys live? And they give him an answer, and what's their answer? They're tough women. They're more vigorous than the Egyptian women. That must have to some extent been believable. Or the king would have called them on it, wouldn't he? Wouldn't he go, oh, what are you talking about? So these people have a reputation for being hearty people. And probably their own methods of trying to beat them down and, and have them 
become less of a group of people through hard labor has proven that to them. The more we push them down, the more of them there are. And the more work they get done, and so on and so on. And so the king goes, okay. And you could raise some questions about their integrity before the king, but God was pleased with them. And he allowed them to have families, which apparently these women were familyless women before. And so they allowed them to have families, and the Hebrews continued to multiply and become mighty. <clears throat> and uh, so why do you think the command of Pharaoh was ineffective? Now, we've already said the Hebrew women feared God. How do you suppose we got this set up? My point to you is this. Here is God at work amongst the Hebrews. We're going to see before we get done, they weren't the all-God-honoring people that you might hope for them to be in, in many respects. But here are these Hebrew people, and they feared God in this way, and so God is at work. God thwarted the intent of the king, and it then became an ineffective rule. So Pharaoh's not done. Okay, if that doesn't work, we see there in verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people. And so he goes to the populace at large, both Hebrews and Egyptians, and says, if you see a son born to the Hebrews, you're to cast them in the Nile. And if they're young women, if they're baby girls, let them live. And so he institutes a form of genocide, partial genocide, aimed at the male babies amongst the Hebrews. And when we get to chapter 2 next time, we'll see how that all works out, at least in one case. Comments, thoughts, I went through that very quickly. Well, well, everything I would say would be speculative, but I think what you can readily say is the Egyptians had the power of the government behind them, so here's the king demanding it, and I doubt that the people, I mean, from what we see in the birth of Moses coming up, they managed to hide him for three months. So at least in that case, and I would guess in many of the cases, um, the, the Hebrews were living in a segregated way a lot like many people who've been enslaved lived. They had their own dwelling places and you know they weren't just freely mixing it up with the general populace. But if you saw a Hebrew with a baby boy out in the general populace, then you probably would be safe to take that baby boy from them. Not safe in the sense of I think the parents would fight back but you probably had enough Egyptian support in the area that they're going to overcome that. Now, my, my guess is that's how it happened, when it happened, if it happened. Well, I guess I'm going back even to like the very beginning where they were forced to start making the bricks and the hard babies. These guys were working out in the fields. And, and so again, like some army conscription kind of thing, we're going to take this many of you and kill me. Well, they clearly, had the, they clearly had people there 
that were capable of forcing them to do that. So you had force there, some, some level of physical do it or you get whipped or do it or you get killed or do it or you get something done to you. So that would probably carry on from there as well. So we say that, that this was a powerful nation at the time, which means they had a commanding army. Oh, yes. And so when you're talking about who's got power, you got military power to back up, you know, even controlling a large population of people if they're already being subjugated. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Rick, I was thinking from a like political standpoint, it's just interesting to see the midwives' response to their rulers um, in light of like Romans thirteen, you know, yeah. as Christians, and so like you know the the barriers that government have with regards to violating the law of God, or it's just a, a really good like example of this that the, the government bears the sword not in vain, but when the government doesn't bear the sword correctly, that we have. We have not only the liberty to, but the responsibility to disobey um, because we fear God rather than men. Yeah, my favorite book of illustrations is The Hiding Place. You get the same thing there. I mean, they were stealing food stamps. They were doing lots of things. Um, And certainly we're not answering all the government's questions in a straight-up manner when they're captured. Um, And so I I think they found themselves in a similar place to the apostles when they were drug in front of the Sanhedrin or the ruling council um, and said, hey, we told you not to speak this way. And they went, well, you know, you have to decide what you think's right and wrong, but we've got to follow God, not you. You're, you're not above God. And, you know, then you also have a contrast, though, and we ought not ignore it of Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. I mean, they were openly defiant and full well accepted. Our penalty is going to be thrown in his fire. And these women, I suppose, could have, more than I suppose, they could have said, we didn't do it because your command's evil and wrong. Now, we know how that would have probably come out. Um, and for whatever reason, God honored them in their, in their defiance. Um, if they had chosen, you know, you're back to God again. Can you say if they had? But... If they had chosen to just say, because you're evil and and it's wrong command, God might have spared them in some fashion. I I don't know how God looked at that particular part of it, but overall he looked at what they did and said, very good, ladies, and prospered them as a result. But you're you're right. Those are are tough, tough situations. Uh, And in the hiding place, you've... You've got one example in there where they had men hiding under the table, under the floor, and there was a rug on top of it and a table on top of that when the soldiers came in to conscript people to the German army in the Netherlands. And the one Nolly would not tell a lie. And so they said, where are the men? And she said, under the table. So they all think they're hiding directly under the table. They get all their guns out and they open the lift the tablecloth there's nothing there but table legs and she starts laughing at them she think they think that they that she has made fun of them so they leave and they don't keep looking and they would have found the men under the floor so I, those are hard situations and yes sir 
And we kind of started there with his comment about they don't bear the sword in vain, but when they do, then we don't. I mean, he didn't say it as clearly as Romans uh, thirteen three says it, but yes. Well, history's full of of, of examples like that. Um, Mm-hmm. I, I wouldn't argue with that at all. But you, but you. Could be. Well, it's true. We could find ourselves in those situations. Going back to Ten Boom, the family ends up going. Prison, and Victoria is the only one who ends up surviving. Mm-hmm. So, at some point, the, that evil government comes into play, and God allows it. But in the end, she ends up being the messenger for a message that's just. Yeah, yeah. I'm, 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 I'm just saying. My point isn't that there's that you can't do those things. My point is that. We're going to find ourselves in situations in our day, like they did in theirs potentially, where, oh, this is tough. We've got to stop and think this through and figure it out and determine what's, what's the God-fearing answer here. And they started in the right place. They feared God. So, good conversation. Other questions, comments? All right, well, let me pray and we'll, we'll be dismissed. Father, uh, we see how... Um, you are going to use an evil king and his oppression of the Israelites to form a nation. Uh, Lord, the stage is beginning to be set as we looked at Exodus 1 this morning. Uh, Lord, it might not be clear at this moment other than we did get to see your interaction with the midwives and their fearing you. how all that would come out if we didn't know the rest of the story. But clearly, Lord, it's, a, it's going to be a difficult situation for a number of years before you free them from this oppression. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to um, endure oppression well when it comes our way and endure it with wisdom, following you and your word and the directions you've given us at every turn. Uh, Lord, we pray this study will continue to reveal to us Uh, ways in which we would live to honor you. It's in Jesus' name we pray.